at the scripture reading, and in point of fact, I'm not going to be doing the reading. Jacob's going to be doing the reading, and he's not just doing the reading. He's memorized the reading. So we're going to give him a chance now to share what he has learned with you. Here you go, Jacob. Now after the Sabbath, on the first day of the week, began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord had descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was whitening, and clothing as white as snow, and his scholars who fulfilled him became like dead men. But the angel Answer and said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you see Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord went, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And then, after the Sabbath, and indeed, he's going before you into Galilee. There they will see me. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the two with fear and great joy to bring his disciples word. Now while they were, and as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go, go and tell my brother, go to God, and there they will see me. Now while they were going, behold, some of the gods came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them. His disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if it comes to the government this year, we will appease it and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they expected. And this day is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Thanks, Jacob. Anybody else <laughs> want to come up here? Give it a whirl. It'd be pretty awesome. So next week, Jacob will be doing that in the original Greek. <laughs> looking, looking forward to that also. Uh, that's some really, really good stuff. Well, happy Easter, everybody. My name is Mark. I'm the lead pastor here at, uh, at Redeemer. I'm so grateful you could be joining us today for our worship service. And as we look at Easter and consider this passage, really it's just a springboard for thinking about the resurrection together this morning. A handful of years ago, some of you might recall on Palm Sunday that two bombs exploded in an Egyptian Coptic Christian church, killing 47 people. It was claimed by ISIS. They were responsible for it. The pastor of that church gave a, a stirring and hopeful message on Monday, just after it occurred, and it was called A Message to Those Who Kill Us. And writing about the funeral later, an observer comments uh, on that entire experience this way. He says, when each coffin was brought into the funeral, the congregation interrupted their sobs with thunderous applause. They recognized in their dead the principal mystery of this holy week, that the cross of Christ ends not in the tomb, but in the glory of the resurrection. 
So there are some people who believed in the resurrection, and when they had this funeral, they were, they were reminded that this isn't the end of the story, that there is still some hope to come. And so he could, as a pastor, even speak to their hearts and say there's hope even in the midst of death because the resurrection really happened. And so this morning, just for uh, a couple of moments together, I want to consider really two things. Just one, did the resurrection actually happen? Is there any evidence for it? And then if it did, what difference does it really make for us? So let's think about this together. Did Christ really rise from the dead? Some of you will be familiar with a man by the name of Josh McDowell. He's written a pretty thick book, and he's defended the historical reality of the resurrection on countless college campuses over the past several decades. Um, This is what he said as he was thinking about why he believes it. After more than 700 hours of studying this subject, I have come to the conclusion that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is either one of the most wicked, vicious, heartless hoaxes ever foisted on the minds of human beings, or it is the most remarkable fact of history. And he's not the only person to make claims like this. There's a guy named Paul, if you're familiar with the New Testament. He wrote about half of it. And he also argues in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that if Christ was not actually raised from the dead, well, he says, let's draw several conclusions from that. The first is the preaching of God's word is useless. What I'm doing here this morning, it's completely useless I mean, apart from maybe some interesting thoughts, but it doesn't have any power in it whatsoever. And any faith you might have as a result of God's word being preached, it's completely useless also. And in fact, he gets even stronger. He says, those who teach about the resurrection, you're flat out liars. He says, you know it's wrong, but you're trying to deceive other people. And therefore, you're still in your sins. There's no real hope of forgiveness. If the resurrection didn't happen, then there's no hope. If all that we have left is hope in this life, in a Christ that did not raise from the dead, he says, frankly, we're kind of pitiful. I mean, we're to be pitied. I should be an object of your pity. And frankly, I am for some people. Isn't that pathetic that a person would believe something like that? If it didn't happen, you're 100% right. There shouldn't be up here talking about this. So let's see if we can consider together a little bit about if it's actually historically true. Now, Paul, uh, along with others like Josh McDowell, come to the conclusion that it actually happened. And there's a, a method to determine the historicity of an event called the inference to the best explanation. This is something that we talk about all the time, isn't we? Isn't we? Don't, don't we talk about that inference to the best explanation? Uh, William Lane Craig says that basically historians, when they try to determine if something actually happened, they begin with the evidence available to us and then infer what would provide the best explanation of that evidence. So in other words, we ought to accept an event as historically accurate if it gives the best explanation for the evidence that is surrounding it and we look at the evidence the truth of the resurrection emerges as the best explanation we're not going to take 700 hours 
now to look at it like Josh did. But uh, here are some things to consider, just a few, few things to consider around that arena. What evidence is there to consider that this actually happened? The first is the historicity and reliability of the manuscripts. So in other words, Jacob just came up and quoted beautifully from Matthew 28. But is that, a, is that an accurate document? Is the Bible that we hold in our hands or that we have on our phones, is it true? Is it accurate? And the answer is yes, at least from historical evidential proofs. The quantity of the New Testament manuscripts is frankly unparalleled in ancient literature. There are over 5,000 Greek manuscripts, 8,000 Latin manuscripts, another 1,000 manuscripts in other languages like Syriac and Coptic. And the quality of the manuscripts of the Hebrew Bible surpasses all other ancient manuscripts. So some of you know in 1947 when they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, they were able to compare what had been stored from hundreds and hundreds of years ago and transferred down and compare it to modern day scripts and the differences were negligible. It was something like color and color if you're an American and you're a Brit. C-O-L-O-R or C-O-L-O-U-R. So apparently somewhere in the desert People spelled things a little bit differently from place to place, but there was no difference in substance after hundreds and hundreds of years. The Masoretic Old Testament manuscripts, 1,000 years old, despite that time span, had virtually no variant readings. There are over 24,000 copies of early New Testament manuscripts known to be in existence today. And you have other tests, internal and external, to corroborate the integrity. If you're somebody who's interested, you can pick up a book called Are the New Testament Documents Reliable? by F.F. Bruce. It's pretty digestible, but you can read that a little bit later. Just this morning, understand that there is a reason to believe that this is an accurate representation of things as they really happened. The claims, in other words, are real claims. The text is not telling you anything that is not substantiated. So that's one. But the second is the empty tomb. The text, which we've just argued is reliable, very briefly, says there's an empty tomb, which frankly has no satisfying explanation without a resurrection. So some people offer explanations. How do you explain that story? Because people claim that they went to a grave where a, roll, a stone had been rolled over and there was no body, but the, the stone had been moved, there was no body. That's the claim. How do you explain that claim? Some people said in history, well, the enemies stole the body. That's one claim. Uh, another one is just his friends took it. You know, they, they wanted to fabricate this story, so they stole his body. Well, let's consider his enemies stealing the body. If that were the case, and the enemies took Jesus' body, then they would have quickly produced the body in order to prove that he was actually dead. So, you know, these people are saying, hey, the one that we've worshipped, he was dead, but now he's risen from the dead. The enemies, Romans and some Jews as well, they, they want to quell this movement and say that is not true at all. They could have produced a body, and that would have made everything, that would have ended it. Just show the body. Here he is. He's dead. Take his pulse. He's, they didn't produce the body, though. So by inference of explanation, something else happened, right? Oh, you could say then his friends stole the body. 
And they're the ones who took it from the grave. Since you can't produce a body, what about these people? They're hiding it. Well, you know, rolling a large stone away when there's a Roman guard and centuries all around it is probably not very reasonable as an explanation. That these people were the kind of individuals well-trained who would have been staking a post. And in the text that we read, there is an explanation given, too, that something else happened. And in fact, these Roman guards, who are supposed to be the toughs of the day, they run away when this happens. Run away! Run away! They were scared of what was going on. What would explain that? Guards posted around the tomb would have prevented that action. And in our text, interestingly enough, who are the first people who arrive at the tomb? They're women. Now, if you're writing a story back in the day and trying to prove that it's true, you wouldn't select women to be the ones who are first arriving at the grave, which I think is pretty awesome when you think about it. The dignity and the value of women in the stories of the gospel is fantastic. But you wouldn't choose them because in a court of law, their testimony wasn't counted, at least not with the same weight. They weren't treated as equals in society. And remember, his friends, the ones that we saw, they weren't even convinced of the resurrection themselves. I mean, they're coming to tend to the body if they can, and it's gone. Everybody else, what are they doing? They're huddled in fear. Because they're afraid now that their leader is gone and dead, and all the hopes that they had pinned on him are gone, and they're the next targets. So they're huddled in fear. Women go to the grave, perhaps a little bit braver than men in this instance, and they go to take care of the body, but the body is gone, and they run back to tell the disciples who are gathered in fear. And most of them say, what are you talking about? That's not possibly true. One of them runs ahead, though, Peter. Peter goes there, the one who had denied Christ three times, said, everybody else can, deny, not, well, you know, can run away, but I won't. I'm good for it. And of course, he denies him three times. And so can you imagine the agony in Peter's heart when he sees him on the cross and knows that he is dead? And then also, perhaps has come alive. You kind of wonder what Peter's thinking about that first encounter when he has with Christ after he's failed so miserably. And the words that Jesus speaks to his disciples is peace. He knew they needed to hear peace. They were fearful on so many levels, hiding from what could come next. And perhaps if you're Peter wondering, what is this guy going to say to me? The last thing I did was abandon him. Jesus comes with words of peace. He reinstates him and he says, I love you. Now go and feed my sheep as well. And that is perhaps the most problematic idea with the sense that this, a reasonable explanation, like the disciples took the body because they were fearful. And the most compelling, perhaps, reality, too, when you talk about this inference to the best explanation is that if they made up the story, the story, then all of the disciples who died for their faith died for a lie. If you, if you wanted to, if we all wanted to kind of conspire together to make up a story that sounds nice, and then go out there, and maybe there's a slight bit of persecution and suffering, but would you be willing to die for me if I were to declare today 
that you should all follow me. This happens for sure. I don't know. I'm not that compelling, but let's just pretend that you say, okay, yeah, I'm in. And you leave, and somebody starts saying, we are literally going to kill you unless you deny it. You'd be quick to say, nah, sorry. And, uh, but not these people. So they were convinced so much so that Jesus rose from the dead that they were willing, each one of them, to die for that. They had plenty of chances to deny it. And think about Peter. It didn't take him very much. He was threatened by some servant around a fire before Jesus died. He said, nah, I don't know that guy. Now, afterwards, he's the one who's going forward and saying, I will die for this. What changed? The resurrected Christ. And then you have, third, the witnesses. This is the evidence provided in the text that we read. Part of it, two women, one Roman guard, see it. He's not there anymore. But then, more than that, we see Paul writing later that he appeared to Peter and then to the 12. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. Most of whom, he wrote at the time of this, are still living. So Paul's saying lots of people saw this. Remember, Paul was a persecutor of people saying that Jesus rose from the dead until he met Jesus the resurrected Christ as well. And he said, well, I guess I'm in. His life completely changed when he encountered the resurrected Christ. He said, go talk to other people. This is no hallucination. He's telling his contemporaries, you can go check with these individuals. It would be nearly impossible to fabricate with such a varied audience in different places, in different numbers, at different times. And he says, go ask them. That's part of why the Bible uses names. They're like footnotes in your papers today. You can go and verify. And the Gospels themselves, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they were all written within the lifetime of the witnesses that are mentioned, which means any radical claims could be denied by contemporaries. I mean, go ask these people if they saw him and if their story is consistent. And if it's not, you can reject it. But they're inviting that. 30 years ago, some of you know that a friend of mine who I went to high school with, Ramstein High School in Germany, uh, just showed up uh, kind of out of the blue. I haven't seen very many of my high school friends because we're scattered literally all around the world. I have no idea what was going on in this guy's life, but he you know, contacted me through Facebook and he said, I'm making a little trip and why don't we connect with each other? So we came on down and I said, hey, what's going on with you these days? He turns out to be, a, he works for the CIA. <laughs> by, by the way, in counterterrorism, I'm like, whoa, what? Nah, that's not possible. But uh, apparently it's true. But what if, what if uh, his, his name is Mike, what if I just said, hey, hey Mike, you know, let's reflect back on our, our Ramstein days together for just a second here. It wasn't that long ago. And what if, what, what, what if I were to tell a story actually to you that 30 years ago, I healed people at Ramstein of multiple diseases. People flocked to me. I declared that I was the son of God, that I had eternally existed. Now I'm just in human form. And that I'm going to, that I was going to die and rise again from the dead. And in fact, I did that. And I appeared to everybody three years after I graduated. And so that was just 30 years ago. That's about the same time frame as these people as well. If you went back and asked some people at Ramstein, hey, what about Mark Champagne? Do you remember that guy? Um, 
there are plenty of administrators and classmates who could be located to verify that that's ridiculous. That's a ridiculous claim. They, they might say something like, oh, I remember him. Wasn't that much of a troublemaker. Decent student, played a few sports. Had a gift mix that would qualify him as a wonderful Walmart greeter, and that's probably it. <laughs> um, but, yeah, no, that's it. What did you say he said he did? No. But Jesus appeared to 500 people at one time, the majority who were still alive and could be questioned. So if each of those 500 people were to testify six minutes, including cross-examination, you'd have 50 hours of first-hand testimony. Move over C-SPAN. Right? I mean, like this, I saw it, I saw it. So that's just a consideration. Now, I say that as we transition because on the one hand, if you're somebody who's, who's in, you say, yes, I believe that. There's a reason you can believe that. It's not just subjective. There are some objective, rational reasons to have faith in that. Or if you're somebody who's not completely on board, at least consider that evidence. It may not be fully convincing. And in, in fact, sometimes you don't see it for what it is until you take the step of belief and you experience the resurrection for yourself. So we go from evidence to experience and ask the question with all this in mind, what difference does the resurrection make to me? I believe it makes a difference for everyone, but what about you? If the resurrection happened, it does make all the difference. You know, in this text, the Romans were fearful. The women feared, and they also had joy. The resurrection didn't just mean fear for them. It meant joy, because he's risen from the dead, and that means something. Not just that he's alive, but his claims were real and were true. They process all of this. They run back to the disciples in Luke 24. And Peter, as we said earlier, runs to see for himself. And he marvels at what happens. And he writes just a little bit later as we consider some of the difference it makes in a book that he wrote to people who were scattered around. Listen to what he says. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. So for Peter, the resurrection made all the difference in the world. Through the resurrection of Christ, he says, we've been given new birth. So what difference does it make? Well, it's the source of new life. You've been given the, the possibility of new life because of the resurrection. New birth is new life. This morning, Facebook post, a friend of mine, new baby into the world. And they're celebrating, gave the name of this child. So we know that when somebody is born, it's new life. And there's the, there's the possibility, isn't there? The potential of, of what comes next. That new life has a source. It's the resurrection of Christ, who, before he had raised from the dead, told Nicodemus late at night, if you really want to experience this, you have to be born again. You've heard that phraseology before. We've all been born once, but Jesus says there's a second birth for you that comes, a spiritual birth that gives you new life. And you can't really know that new life unless you know it in me. 
He's telling that to Nicodemus. And the proof positive that he can give new life, that these aren't just words, is that he rose from the dead. That's what Peter is saying. That proves new life is possible. New birth, new life, fresh start. Don't you want a fresh start? Don't you want a new start? I am so grateful when we turn a calendar. And I know you look back after a while and you're like, wow, that means I'm how old? But don't you kind of look forward to a new year? I mean, especially with a year like last year. Who wanted to live there forever? Ah, 2022. Is it 2022? Okay. A brand new year. You're excited about that. Or, I mean, frankly, a, a new season. A new day. Isn't it nice to wake up? It's a new day and sometimes a new part of the day. Sometimes it's a new hour. Sometimes you're just happy it's another minute. There are new starts all around, and that's baked into our sense of what we want because God himself in Christ has given us the possibility of new life. And the resurrection's proof positive that it's not just a nice story. It's true. And he is the one who can give it. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is very simple. The resurrected Christ says, Behold, I make all things new. I love that verse. That's the resurrected Christ saying, You want to know what I do? I make all things new. The resurrection proves it. The resurrected Christ said, This is my business to make things new. If you watch this old house, there's so many other shows like it. Don't you ever want those guys to come into your place and make everything really nice and new? How do they get on that stuff? But if, you, if you've got an old house and it needs some, some work, you know, they, they go in and they, they renovate it too. This is a picture of what Jesus says, I do for you. I come in and I make it all new. I take up residence, the resurrected Christ, by virtue of the spirit whom he sent, lives in us and gives us new life. You can contrast that with a Harvard professor of counseling who said to author Becky Pippert during her course, Systems of Counseling, if you guys are looking for a changed heart, I think you're looking in the wrong department. At least they're being honest. We can't change your heart. Maybe give you some new ways of thinking. But who can then? Can anybody give new life? Can anyone take a heart of stone and make it a living, beating heart of flesh for the things of God? Yeah. The one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. And the proof positive is that he rose from the dead. And it's not just individual lives. It's all of creation. Romans 8 says the creation itself is groaning and awaiting something. And later... We learn that, in fact, God will refashion creation itself and make a new heaven and a new earth. Everything new. Everything. Spring is a perfect time, at least in this part of the world, to celebrate Easter. Creation itself is going from winter to spring and from death to life. And in Cincinnati, back to death. But then life. And then death again. And maybe finally life. Because I think snow is supposed to come tomorrow. But life is coming. And the newness. And there are, still, there are still flowers bursting forth. And colors. And 
That's, that's creation itself groaning and giving a picture of what new life looks like. Because of Christ, he himself has redeemed not just us individually, but creation itself and the cosmos. That's how much the resurrection matters. It's the source of new life. But also, as we see in that verse, it's the source of a living hope. He's given us new birth into what? A living hope. Living hope. That's a current and ongoing reality. Hope sets its eyes on the future by definition. But this hope here exists always in the present. It's a, it's a, a living, beating reality like hope with a heartbeat. And this is because this hope that Jesus offers exists even when things around you look hopeless. That's the message of Good Friday. If you went to a service, perhaps, that kind of says there's so much darkness and despair and everything seems like it's ending. Christ is in the grave. But Sunday is coming, and yet most of us live in Saturday. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Friday, Good Friday, Sunday, hallelujah, Christ is risen. risen. Yeah, there you go. But it's Saturday, right, for so many of us. And that, that was true on Saturday as well. Duke Kwan says this, For the modern Christian, the in-betweenness of Saturday is most difficult to endure. The silence, confusion, uncertainty, waiting. Yet this is where most of life is lived. We mustn't distract ourselves from its agony. Watch, wait, clarity will come, but not yet. And living in this kind of not yet It's kind of what hope is all about. But we know clarity will come because we aren't ultimately really living in Saturday. We're not stuck in Saturday because Sunday happened. So, yes, we're sort of waiting, but we know that we won't have to wait forever because Jesus rose from the dead. So you feel like there's Saturday. Sunday's not just coming. It already done came. It's already happened. Sunday came. And yeah, we feel like we're living in that waiting space. But look to the resurrection because that's living hope. And the Bible takes a very practical view on these matters. A living hope does make a difference in the here and now. Peter, for example, offers a perspective in his book on suffering. Lots of language in the book about that. These people's lives are hard. They've just heard through the resurrection we have a living hope and they look around and their lives are miserable. They're scattered, many of them, and they're going through trials and difficulties. But he says this, this is later in that same passage. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. You see, the the resurrection then frames their perspective on their suffering. It reminds them that their own Savior suffered. In order to raise again, he had to die, but also that it does have a coal. Your suffering, your trials... The resurrection changes your perspective on this. They're not without purpose. Our present trials might crush us or certainly lead us to despair, perhaps drive us to cynicism, 
maybe cause us to doubt whether God exists or loves us at all. If it weren't rooted in the living hope secured by Christ's resurrection, we can look back and say it's not hopeless. It's a living hope because Christ rose from the dead. If he didn't, then we have no reason to hope. But he did, so we do. And we look back at that. That's essentially what faith is. The recognition that well, we are not God and that we desperately need him. In, in times of suffering, we have to reflect on that. I, I really enjoy this verse in 2 Corinthians 1.9 because I've felt like this sometimes in the past few years. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. Have you ever felt like that? Like you're, you're just, you've got a death sentence. Maybe physically, emotionally, perhaps spiritually. Dead. Paul goes on to say, but this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. That's, that's from a perspective of somebody who already believes, who's really struggling with things. And he says the resurrection of Christ always has the backdrop of death. And you might feel like you're dying now, so rely on God. He's the one who raises the dead. Stop this whole self-sufficiency thing you've got going on. This, this whole, I can do it on my own, and realize that you can't. And in fact, you're not designed to do that. In this suffering and trial, then rely on God. He's the one who can raise from the dead. How important is the resurrection, not just to Peter, but to us as well. And finally, it's the guarantee of a future inheritance. He's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Kept in heaven for you. There's so little in this world that is permanent. But the resurrection of Christ secures for the believer an inheritance that cannot be taken away. Cryptocurrency. Anybody got that? Anybody understand it? I've read so many articles. I know I'm not a computer science guy about blockchains and all that kind of stuff, too. Still trying to figure it all out and everything. There's a great commercial I've seen, too, with a guy who, who's uh, all of a sudden he's looking at his phone and he's throwing a big party. Have you seen this? He's like, hey, I'm rich because he has a bunch of cryptocurrency. And then a couple seconds later, he, all the party stuff goes away. He's like, oh, I'm poor because it went beep like this. And it's like up and down. And, oh, if it only had one thing of Bitcoin, and then it crashes, and then it goes back. That's not very reliable. If your hope is in that, there's no guarantee of a future inheritance in that respect. But Jesus knew physical death, which is a reality of our existence, and says, because of his resurrection, the moment of death is not the end. But Paul talks about his death and then resurrection being a first fruits. That is a down payment. He's the first one among many. So the fact that he rose from the dead means that those who trust in him will one day rise as well. That means death is not the end. It's just the beginning. One of, one of my favorite times of preparation last year, which was 2021, I'm remembering now, was uh, on heaven and thinking through heaven and and just being overcome with the hope of a new heaven and a new earth and an inheritance that is to come in, in sort of a unique sort of way. And that's what the glimpse of 
of, of heaven is that we get here too. In suffering and trial, you look back at Jesus, the first fruits of the resurrection, guaranteeing what is to come, that there is a life yet to come, and that he is both the door to that life, the entry point, and he's also the one who guarantees and secures it for you. If you hope in him then, it's not like cryptocurrency. It's not, not going to fade away. It's locked up and secured in the eternal vault of heaven. Remember what Paul wrote? If only in this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But we don't have hope only in this life. That's what the resurrection assures us. There's a hope to come no matter how sorrowful our experiences in life are, no matter how, how sad and our circumstances might be. The promise of resurrection assures us there is something to look forward to that is better and that is complete. That's the hope for those who trust in Christ. And I think that's something that we all long for, don't we? It seems that we truly long for something that can never really be attained in this world. The, the first fruits of Christ raising from the dead says there's something more. This, this world has a lot to offer, and we have a new perspective on it, if in fact we know the resurrected Christ. But it will never completely satisfy. It just won't. And we run again and again and try to drink from broken cisterns and go back. And we take it in one time, and it satisfies for a short period of time. And then when it doesn't, we think we're going to change, and we go right back again. It will never work. We long for something this world can never give us. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. Most people, if they really learn how to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want, and want acutely, something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I'm not speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or trips and so on. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There is always something we grasp that in that first moment of longing that just fades away in the reality. The spouse may be a good spouse. The scenery has been excellent. It has turned out to be a good job. But it has evaded us. And what he's saying is that because there's only one place you can go that's going to deliver on those promises, and it's found in the resurrected Christ. There is something more. There's also something real that we can experience in the now through the power of the resurrection, new life, a living hope, a future inheritance. If you feel hungry today for more in life, turn to Jesus. He said, I'm, I'm the bread of life. Maybe you lack direction, turn to Jesus. He said, I'll show you the way. If you feel alone, turn to Jesus. He says, I am the shepherd who is with you always, even in the valley of the shadow of death. You feel disconnected from yourself and others, turn to Jesus. He is the vine, and he will graft you in. 
Maybe today you feel dead. Turn to Jesus. He is the resurrection and the life. Paul said, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the hope of Easter. And it can only be found in Christ. Father, I pray this.